A Christian mind is not one that is trained to think only about Christian topics. It is a mind that has learned to think about everything from a Christian perspective. Christianity provides a comprehensive view of the world. Christianity is a worldview. Worldviews are the grids. They are the lenses through which we frame all of reality. Hey guys, you are listening to episode 6 of the Black Berea podcast. So on our last podcast, we had an OxBB episode and most of the questions we received or essentially have received since starting Black Berea has been on the topic of whether Christianity is a white man's religion. Does Christianity have any history in Africa or was it just a tool to control blacks during the heights of slavery? To tackle this and more, our brother Israel of the Black Berea team recently conducted an interview with Dr. Vince Bantu to discuss some of these issues and debunk some of the opposing arguments that Christians receive. I hope you find it enjoyable. See ya! Hi, I'm Israel Kalade from Black Berea. Today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Vince Bantu. Dr. Bantu, thank you for coming on to discuss Christianity in Africa and all the topics around it. Thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure. And just to start off, can you give us a quick bio or background of who you are? Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm talking to you guys today from uh, the United States. I'm in uh, the state of Missouri, uh, in the city of St. Louis. So. We're, we're known for our big 600-foot uh, arch, <laughs> sorry, kind of identifying monument. Um, and uh, I'm born and raised in this city, in St. Louis, and, um, and um, I'm a biracial person. Uh, my father is black and my mother is white. Um, my father is African-American, and, and my mother is predominantly of German descent, and they're also from St. Louis. And I, I was away for many years for school. And then I've come back. I felt God called me to be here and to teach and to pastor as well. So I, I teach at Covenant Theological Seminary, which is the um, national seminary for the Presbyterian Church of America. And I teach missions and missiology and cross-cultural um, ministry. And then also I'm a pastor in the Evangelical Covenant Church. And our church is called Outpour Covenant Church, and it's a multi-ethnic church. Uh, it's predominantly uh, Asian-American, people of Korean and Chinese descent, uh, as well as some other uh, ethnicities. And it's a church that seeks to be multi-ethnic and multi-economic here in the city of St. Louis. And um, and I, I'm one of the pastors there as well. Um, and, I, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I, I recently finished my doctorate. I I uh, was away for a long time for school. I studied theology in undergrad and got a Master of Divinity at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Boston, in Massachusetts. And then I did a THM, a Master of Theology, at Princeton Theological Seminary in church history. And then I did my another MA and then my PhD in uh, at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. And just uh, finished that a couple of years ago and have been, been here at the seminary for the last couple of years teaching. So you mentioned, so you mentioned that, um, that Christianity, Christianity was a global church from the start. What are the features of Christianity in Africa that means that we can say and debunk the myth that Christianity is inherently the white man's religion? Mm. Yeah, I, that's a great question. I mean, I think that there's several uh, different ways that we can address this dynamic, right? I mean, you you know, you mentioned that um, there's this myth that Christianity is a white man's religion. And it's interesting that we're we're talking right now on, on different sides of the Atlantic, um, and yet in the black community, both in the UK and in the US, we have a similar a similar dynamic, almost a crisis in some ways, 
where uh, people who, you know, people of African descent in the UK as well as in the United States um, have largely been historically Christian and rooted in the church. But especially in the last, you know, few decades, we've seen an increasing amount of, of people of African descent uh, leaving the church. And it's interesting that a lot of the reasons are often not theological, but they're racial and cultural. Um, especially in the United States, we have very many, uh, almost, it seems like uh, almost every week there's a new religion that I hear about among African Americans. Um, you know, we have the Moorish Science Temple of America. We have the Nation of Gods and Earth or the 5% Nation, uh, the Hebrew Israelites. Um, you know, I think I saw something that apparently now Kendrick Lamar is uh, apparently a Hebrew Israelite now. And, um, and then, of course, we've had the Nation of Islam since the days of Malcolm X. And, um, and there's just so many of these groups that um, among black people and the interesting thing about it is that whether they claim to be muslim or jew or or something totally different again like five percenters or or many african americans are also converting and trying to go back to indigenous african religions you know like voodoo or uh yoruba religion and you know you have all of you know all these kinds of things but again the interesting dynamic about it is that it's often not a theological problem that they have with Christianity, but it's a racial one. There's a really good video that's a little clip of Muhammad Ali who converted to Islam, also again was born and raised in the church and he saw pictures of white Jesuses in, in black churches uh, and this was a problem for him and, and, and for many other for Malcolm X and many early African American Muslims as well who did not connect with this Jesus that was being presented as as a you know a Scandinavian person that looked like Thor <laughs> instead of a Middle Eastern Palestinian from the first century, but in this video clip, uh, he's being interviewed. He, it actually happened in the UK uh, back. Um, you know, he was describing uh, his career, boxing career, and the, and the interviewer asked him why he decided to convert to Islam. And if, it's interesting if you watch this clip, he. He go. He proceeds to, to to describe the racism that he experienced in American society, and even as a professional, world famous athlete, and also um, theologically, the way that he saw Christianity as being presented as a white man's religion and white depictions of Jesus, and and um, and so, and that was the answer he gave as to why he's a Muslim. Again, it had nothing to do with. Uh, Jesus or who Jesus said he is or the claims about Jesus or or the Islamic uh, or the Quranic critique of Jesus and or the, the claims of Christians, uh, specifically the claim of Jesus being divine or the Trinity. Nothing to do with any of that. All of it had to do with racism and the racial experience that he had. And it's a similar dynamic that I encounter even as a pastor who, where I, I live and minister in a predominantly African-American community. And when I encounter African-Americans who are not Christian, that's very often the case. And again, the different religions that we described and talked about, as different as they are and, and as very diverse as they are, that is maybe the only constant um, commonality is that all of them will constantly talk about and critique Christianity as a white Western religion and uh, and then have come up with some other religious system that they claim to be more empowering of black people, which sometimes will have to rely on historical fiction uh, or uh, kind of uh, some theological or mental gymnastics. And I think that you know, as, I'm, as I'm pushing back and critiquing a lot of these movements, I also want to be careful to speak to the, to the legitimacy of a lot of the sentiment behind what is pushing people away from Christianity. I think that's important for us as Christians to really 
to own and to take responsibility for is that that there is a way that we have presented the gospel racially and culturally that is pushing people of African descent away from Christianity. And not only people of African descent, but all over the world. Again, if you're any missionary in the Middle East or in Central Asia or any part of the world that is historically uh, where Christianity has not been as prevalent, will tell you that one of the biggest hurdles for people coming to the gospel is the perception that Christianity is a Western white religion, that that to convert to Christianity is not only a, a process of, of becoming a Christian and putting your faith in Jesus, but it's a process of culturally converting, of becoming a Western person, becoming a white person. And so, and, and that, again, has to do with the way missions has gone hand-in-hand hand with colonial practice, that colonials, Western colonials went throughout the world conquering the world, uh, and then and missionaries went right alongside them, and sometimes uh, challenged the colonialists, but, all, but, but uh, many times were complicit with it. And in either case... It doesn't change the perception from the perspective of non-Western people that 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 Christianity and Western imperialism go hand in hand, and so um, and so this is why we have to go beyond and go earlier than the history, the last five hundred years of Western colonialism in which Western Christianity has been implicated in, and we have to go back to the origins of Christianity in Africa and in the Middle East and in Asia um, to show that not only was Christianity present in these areas, but in many cases it was not only present, but it was the dominant religion, and also that it took on the indigenous language and the indigenous culture of these various contexts. And in the case of Africa, um, the interesting thing about Christianity in Africa is that ancient Africa, from the time of the apostles up until going forward, was predominantly Christian. Christianity as a religion dominated what we can tell of early Africa. And, you know, we're talking about North Africa uh, in Carthage and Numidia and Mauritania and Libya. Uh, Christianity was prevalent there from the very beginning. And um, uh, the book of Acts in chapter 2 says that there were Libyans present at Pentecost. And we know Simon of Cyrene helped Jesus carry the cross. And so we see in Acts 2 all the nations under heaven, as it says, were gathered all of these were Jewish uh, believers who then went out from there and spread the gospel in their own language. And so we, we see that uh, North Africa was a part of that. And, and we have some of the earliest Christian apologists and earliest Christian literature coming from North Africa, like the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicity, and also the writings of Tertullian, who was the first writer, a Christian writer to write in Latin. And then also Egypt. Egyptians were present at Pentecost as well. And uh, and the you know Coptic Orthodox Church, which is the modern you know Church of Egypt, the dominant historical Church of Egypt, uh, claims that the Apostle Mark came to Egypt in the first century and brought the gospel. And this is uh, uh, while we don't have first century evidence to uh, corroborate that, there uh, although already in the, in the early 300s onward, that was the tradition that early Christians around the world understood to be the case. And um, but but again, uh, Egypt it has the we have the first biblical fragment, the earliest extant biblical fragment from the Gospel of John was found in Egypt in the mid-2nd century. So we already, and, and some of the, again, some of the earliest Christian literature was found in Egypt as well. And also one of the earliest seminaries, the School of Alexandria, was founded uh, in the late 2nd century during the time of Pope Demetrius. And so uh, Christianity at that time, by no later than the, second, the late 2nd century, around 180, had Christianity become the dominant religion in, in Egypt as well. 
And then you also have uh, two examples of of black African Christian kingdoms. These are ancient kingdoms of Nubia and Ethiopia, or Axum, as it was called in that time. And these are kingdoms that were independent of Rome. Egypt and North Africa were part of the Roman Empire. They were provinces of Rome. But Nubia, or uh, it was as it was known before, Cush, was uh, going all the way back to Old Testament times, a powerful black nation. And by the no later than the, the 5th century in the 400s, uh, Nubia had become a predominantly Christian country, likely by the influence of other African Christians in, who spoke Coptic in southern Egypt that brought the gospel into Nubia at that early, uh, at that early stage. And, and then also into Ethiopia. We already see Ethiopians present in the, um, in the, in the, old, in the New Testament as well in Acts 8, uh, or what's mentioned as an Ethiopian, uh, that Philip speaks to an Ethiopian. But it's actually more likely that uh, that person was a Nubian because it, it mentions that he was a eunuch of Candace, which is actually a title for the queen of Nubia or Cush uh, or Meroe, which was the capital of Cush at that time in the first century. So, but but in Greek, Ethiopian or Ethiopios just meant black person, you know, someone south of Egypt. And so, uh, so it's likely that eunuch came and brought the gospel to the court of Candace in in Meroe, the capital of Cush, in the first century. And so those are just, you know, kind of some of the major examples. But again, in, especially with the case of Egypt and Ethiopia, uh, Christian, um, while unfortunately Christianity died out in North Africa, as well as in Nubia, eventually, um, in Egypt and in Ethiopia, Christianity uh, has survived. And so the Coptic Orthodox Church is the early, one of the, the earliest church in Africa, and it still is the largest uh, Christian minority group, about 15% of the population of Egypt today. And then Ethiopia is still a predominantly Christian country, and it always has been a predominantly Christian country ever since uh, ancient times. Another helpful, um, I think, historical fact to bring up as we, again, to the question, debunk this myth that Christianity is a Western white religion. And especially when I'm engaging African-American Muslims who will say that all black uh, slaves were Muslim. And and so that's why we have to go back to Islam, because that was our original religion Um, that, you know, uh, that I mean, you know, to be fair, there's a there's a, a a grain of truth in that. I mean, certainly not that all or even most uh, slaves in the transatlantic slave trade were Muslim, but yes, there were evidence of some slaves who were taken from West Africa who were Muslim. Uh, Omar Ibn Said is a great example, who was a slave who was brought from Senegal to um, uh, to the slave mart in Charleston, South Carolina, and then who lived in North Carolina and wrote in Arabic. He's actually the earliest American writer to write in Arabic. Um, and so, there, but again, actually, his religious identity was actually kind of debatable because he—it's—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's possible that he may have been a Christian or converted to Christianity or have been kind of some kind of hybrid. Um, so there were examples like Omar ibn Said, but again, this is the vast minority. Uh, and, and the work of Albert Rabito uh, in his book *Slave Religion* speaks to this: that the vast majority of the 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 religious life of slaves coming from uh, West Africa to the Americas were practicing indigenous African religion. So we, you know, we see the dominant religion of slaves were were African indigenous African religions, while there was a minority of Muslims. Um, so, uh, but again, even before Islam existed, uh, and and even before we have historical records for African history in West Africa, and I'm talking about late antiquity, going back to the fourth and fifth century, the evidence we have of Africans and that early of a time were Christian. Nubians, Ethiopians, Egyptians, uh, North Africans, they were Christian. And uh, if it hadn't been for 
the Western church isolating these churches and calling them heretics in the 400s uh, when when the African churches and the Middle Eastern churches largely split from the European church, then uh, the mission work that was already going on all throughout late antiquity could have continued into West Africa and into South, further South Africa. Um, but it was, unfortunately, uh, you know, the, the growth, the massive growth of Christianity that was happening in Africa from the first century all the way up to the sixth to the seventh century, um, was it was it was by it was it was free. Africans, ancient Africans, were embracing Christianity because they they believed in it to be the truth. They believed Jesus to be the Messiah, and they embraced Christianity freely. Nobody forced it on them. Christianity was not forced on Africa uh, in the first through the seventh century. This was a this was a religion that ancient Africans adopted freely and also contextualized to their own African identity. Some examples of this would be uh, the Ankh symbol in Egypt. This is a, the Ankh is a, a very common symbol in Egypt, uh, in Egyptian hieroglyphs, and it's, a, it's probably maybe one of the most common symbols in, in hieroglyphics. But Egyptian Christians, when Egypt became a predominantly Christian nation, continued to use the Ankh symbol as, uh, as the cross of Christ. And so they were taking their Egyptian culture, but they were giving it Christian significance. No different than the way Western Christians today still use Christmas trees and Christmas wreaths and um, and Easter bunnies and Easter eggs to use their pre-Christian Anglo-Saxon culture to uh, give it Christian significance, which happened in a much, much later, centuries after Africans were. So at, in this early stage when Africans became Christian, Europeans were still uh, worshiping Thor and Odin and, and uh um, you know, all of the pre-Christian Anglo, these when Europe, Northern and Western Europe were still, uh, you know, this was, you know, centuries before St. Patrick came to the UK and, and was one of the first to, uh, or, you know, uh, went, went over to Ireland from the UK and brought Christianity into, uh, you know, Western Europe. Much, much, much sooner than that, Christians were already the dominant religion in Africa. Um, as well as in uh, Ethiopia, you see examples of pre-Christian religion uh, in Ethiopia, where they worship the sun, but you still see examples of of the of pictures, images of the sun in Ethiopian churches, uh, as they're still retaining part of their pre-Christian culture, but giving it Christian significance. Um, and so, uh, so again, all of this is before Islam even existed. This is all from the first century up until the seventh. Now, when Islam came around in the six hundreds in in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, you know, Islam gained a, a strong foothold in Arabia, but then after the death of Muhammad in the early 7th century, his followers went around the world and, and uh, you know, conquered much of the known world, the Persian Empire, much of Mesopotamia and the Middle East, uh, and then also most of North Africa. Um, but the interesting thing is that when, when Muslims attempted, after they had conquered Egypt, when Muslims attempted to come into Nubia next from Egypt, which both of which were predominantly Christian, uh, the, the Muslims were successful in conquering Egypt, but they were unsuccessful in conquering Nubia. And actually, in the 7th century, the Islamic conquest of the 7th century, Nubia is, the, is unique as being the only nation, which was a Christian nation, the only nation that the Muslims uh, in the 7th century were unable to conquer. Everywhere else they went in the 7th century, they conquered and won. In North Africa, Syria, Palestine, Persian Empire... Uh, the Arabian Peninsula, they conquered everywhere they went in the 7th century except Nubia. Nubia, the Nubian army, which was Christian, so you, again, you have Muslim Arabians coming into Africa by the sword, by force, coming into black Africa, which was Christian, 
uh, and then uh, they either conquer or they were unsuccessful in conquering Nubians. And even Muslim historians themselves, uh, 8th and 9th century Muslim historians written in Arabic, will even uh, testify to this is actually the source that we get most of this information. Because, again, when you're talking to a lot of these um, kind of, you know, Hebrew Israelites or five percenters of these African American uh, kind of new religious movements, uh, oftentimes they'll history will be uh, either baseless or it will be discounted as well. That's the white man's history or that's the devil's history. But this is from Muslim Arabic history is actually the primary source that we get information on the attempted conquest of Nubia by Arab Muslims in the seventh century. And even they will admit that they were unable to conquer the Nubian army, and so they create a peace treaty that Egypt would remain under Muslim control, um, even though it was still predominantly Christian, the population was predominantly Christian, but it was under Muslim uh, under Muslim rulers, and that Nubia would remain Christian and remain an independent Christian kingdom. So again, it's important to point out to a lot of these folks um, when we talk to them that Christianity first entered Africa as a, uh, peacefully, and it was adopted and embraced and, and adapted to uh, the indigenous Ethiopian and Nubian and Egyptian cultures. And in fact, the earliest evidence of, of history, period, that we have in Africa is Christian. I mean, the earliest history of Africa in, you know, Coptic literature, Nubian literature, Ethiopian literature, it's all predominantly Christian literature in and of itself. It's all, it, it helps us to see the, the dynamic to which in the ancient world, being Ethiopian and being Christian went hand in hand. Or being Nubian and being Christian went hand in hand, and same for Egypt, for Egyptian. So the idea that Christianity is a Western white religion uh, is 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 a hundred percent contrary to actual fact. That in the ancient world, in ancient Africa, being African and being Christian went hand in hand, and this is long before uh, Christianity ever even reached uh, Northern or Western Europe. So keep keeping in line with the discussion about Egypt, um, how do we answer the question um, that is posed towards Christians that? You know, Christianity is a copycat religion of Egyptian mythology. How would we respond mm-hmm. to something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think again, it goes back to um, a, a, you know um, the reality is that a lot of times, a lot of these claims are not really based in historical uh, accuracy or in you know. Th- there's often a lack of engaging. Um, kind of a lot of the primary sources and material. Um, you know, I think I think one important point to note about that is that um, if you look at Egyptian religion and Egyptian mythology and, and religious texts, there's very little in common with Christianity when we actually look at it. I mean a lot of the a lot of the supposed claims about the similarities between uh, between Horus and Jesus, for example, when you read some, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of these claims are on websites that have no historical uh, kind of or scholarly backing to them, and and so they will just be literally fabricated um, commonalities. Like you know, you'll read websites that'll say, well, uh, you know, Isis and Mary both gave birth to a virgin uh, savior messianic figure. Well, that's not the case at all. And if you actually read the Book of the Dead and you look at Egyptian uh, Egyptian religious text, you'll see that Isis actually used a phallic uh, object from Osiris to create Horus. And so there's, it's not uh, a virgin birth, and it's not at all the same thing. And I think another interesting point to point out is that no respected New Testament scholar or uh, scholar of Egyptian religion 
would claim that Christianity is a copycat of Egyptian religion. Uh, they would completely reject that and say, no, the two religions have have very little in common, and Christianity and the claims of Christianity are very unique to the New Testament and to the world of Christianity, and it's not at all a copycat. And I think it's also interesting to point out that many of these scholars who would claim this are not Christian. Uh, many, in many, in many times, they're they're sometimes atheists uh, or agnostic. Uh, like like Bart Ehrman, for example, who's one of the most respected New Testament scholars in the world, who is uh, who is clearly not a Christian and does not claim to be a Christian at all, and is agnostic. Um, even he will, in his in writings and in articles that he's written, will completely dismiss out of hand these claims that Christianity is a copy of Egyptian religion. And because again, the, the argument will sometimes be, well, of course, you as a Christian are biased, and you're going to want to de- defend the uniqueness of your religion. But again, the uniqueness and the essential difference between Christianity and Egyptian religion or any other religion um, is also a a claim that is made by people who are completely outside of the Christian religion and would have no reason to be biased in defense of Christianity and and would be quick to claim that they don't believe that Jesus is who the New Testament claims that he is. Um, and that they don't they don't believe in that Jesus is God, but they will claim and that that the the New Testament uh, and early Christian literature and and who the early Christians believed Jesus to be is a very unique claim that has very little in common with uh, you know, with Egyptian religion or any other religion. Hey guys, just giving you a quick break um, and to remind you of where you can find us on our social media platforms. We are on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash BlackBerea. Please follow us on there. Our hashtag is BlackBereaPod. We have a Facebook page. You can find us by searching BlackBerea. And we are on Instagram at instagram.com forward slash BlackBerea. If you're listening to this on iTunes and you're really feeling us, why don't you just go ahead and just leave a little cheeky review, a little cheeky rating. Um, it will help us a lot in, in getting our podcast out to a wider audience. Uh, so, yeah, thank you so much. We also reply emails, which is blackberea at gmail.com. So, yeah, back to regular scheduled programming. Thank you for that. You mentioned previously as well that um, there's been a sort of increase in people within the black community leaving Christianity because of the, the myth that we discussed earlier about it being a white man's religion. Um, I wanted to ask you, what do you think are the reasons for the increase specifically in black Hebrew Israelites? Like you mentioned, even Kendrick Lamar's new album suggesting or hinting to the idea that he may be a black Hebrew Israelite. And then following from that, do you think that the early African Christians considered themselves to be the true Israelites? And how can a a better understanding of early African Christianity respond to the whole black Hebrew Israelite movement? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's no, that's a great question. I mean, definitely in the case of, um, uh, well, I guess I'll start with the second question. Uh, in the case of Ethiopia, clearly there there is a dynamic where Ethiopians consider themselves to be in the line of David and Solomon, and uh, this is this goes back to the history of the Cabra Nagast, which is the the glory of the kings, and this is a text that comes from the 13th, excuse me, century in Ethiopia. But that is describing events that happened, uh, you know, almost 2,000 years before between King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. Now, the problem with that is that it's not it's not exactly clear if the Queen of Sheba that's mentioned in the Old Testament is from Ethiopia, uh, because it, the the location of Sheba or Saba, where the Sabaean people or cult, culture comes from, is more often actually associated with South Arabia. 
And it just says that she came from the south, which Ethiopia or Arabia would fit that description. So it's not even clear exactly where the Queen of Sheba came from. But, of course, in the Ethiopian culture and tradition, especially in the church, they claim that she was Ethiopian. And the text of the Cabernagas describes how apparently she and Queen King Solomon had a son who was the first monotheistic Jewish Ethiopian king in Ethiopia who introduced monotheism. Uh, and, and which prepared the ground for the reception of the gospel of Christianity in Ethiopia uh, in the first century through the Ethiopian eunuch. But again, that's also problematized by the, the high likelihood that the eunuch mentioned in Acts 8 was not actually Aksumite or Ethiopian, but he was Nubian. And so, um, but, uh, but again, uh, you know, all that aside, that doesn't change the reality of how the 13th century uh, A.D. text, Kaber Nagas, has deeply shaped the identity of Ethiopian Christians to this day of, of having this uh, Solomonic dynasty, which ended re in, our re in recent times under Haile Selassie, uh, who was the final kind of emperor in that dynasty of, of you know, understanding there being some Jewish connection there. Um, but they're all there. That's again debatable, even within Ethiopian in Ethiopian society, because there's also the Beta Israel, which is an Ethiopian tribe that do not consider themselves Christians, but consider themselves purely Jewish, and many of whom live in Israel today, and uh, actually do. Um, there actually is some some evidence that they share uh, DNA with uh, kind of the Semitic uh, people. Uh, just like the Limba people um, and also in, in South Africa um, and in Zimbabwe. And so there are examples of African Jews who share DNA commonalities. And so um, so there there is an example of that in Ethiopia in particular, but but certainly in Nubia or in Egypt, uh, there you know, while the, while Christianity in Egypt and in North Africa originally uh, grew up among the Jewish community, it, it quickly spread out from there to other North Africans who were not Jewish. And and you see very clearly uh, in, in early Christian literature in North Africa from Tertullian and Augustine that they did not consider themselves Jewish. They were North African, they were Numidian, and they were Berber, but they did not consider themselves to be Jewish and talked about Jews as a distinct, separate people group. Uh, same thing is true in Egypt with Egyptian uh, church fathers like uh, Athanasius or uh, or Clement or Origen, Cyril of Alexandria, as well as the Coptic writers like uh, Shenouda and uh, and Benjamin of Alexandria and Timothy Elaris and other other writers uh, who uh, wrote in in Coptic and in, as well as in Greek um, that talked about that these were you know African Egyptian church fathers that understood Jewish people to be a completely separate people group. In fact, the, there's a really helpful dissertation by Michael Fote from Brown University that talks about the social worldview of Shenouda, who was the uh, who was an African, uh, an Egyptian Coptic writer in the late 5th and er, uh, early 6th century, uh, or excuse me, late 4th and early 5th century. And it talks about the way that he viewed people in different ethnic categories as as Greek and as Jewish and as and as Egyptian. And so he understood himself to be an Egyptian and uh, and Jewish uh, people were a separate people group. They were distinct. And and unfortunately, in many cases, early African Christians expressed and participated in the same kind of anti-Semitism that we that we found in other like Greek and Latin church fathers as well, um, like John Chrysostom and, and others. Uh, and same thing in the Middle East, Ephraim the Syrian also would often even express 
express negative and even degrading comments about Jews. So it's not only clear that they did not consider themselves Jewish, but unfortunately, early African Christians sometimes would have negative things to say about Jews, especially in Egypt. And um, and then also in Nubia as well, there's there's no sense or evidence that, that Nubian Christians consider themselves uh, Jewish. And so, again, the claims of Hebrew Israelites are not based in any kind of historical accuracy. I mean, they make outlandish claims like like King James of England was black, and that's why they read the King James version of the Bible. So again, um, it's not it's not based in any kind of historical fact or accuracy. And yet, it, which gets into the first question, which is you know why are the why are people converting from Christianity uh, to fake made up religious claims that are are just baseless in any kind of historical fact. Um, and, and I think that a lot of it has to do with, and, and there's a degree to which we as the church, and even as the black church, have to take some ownership for the way in which uh, our people have been, uh, even outside of our own control, have been marginalized and oppressed by white Christians. I mean, we have to take that very seriously, uh, that, that, it were, it, that it was uh, white slave traders who claimed to be Christian and uh, who, you know, forced the this religion of, of oppression on black slaves uh, all through the Americas and in and in Europe as well, and so we have to take that very seriously. And 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 the white church needs to repent uh, and for for this these historical atrocities and even the ways in which we still feel the effects. And some some people are operating in similar mindsets even today. Um, but then also, I think even we as black Christians, I think uh, we there's also an extent to which we have to take responsibility to contextualize the gospel um, to our own people. And that's what we did, and that's why Christianity was the dominant religion of, especially in, in, for, in the United States for African Americans, that the same Bible that was being used to uh, endorse slavery and twisting New Testament passages to endorse slavery, that same Bible that was introduced to us by our oppressors, uh, we took that Bible and we took the stories that it that it uh, gave us, and the Holy Spirit empowered us to read it correctly and 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 see that it actually called for the end of slavery and our liberation and our freedom. And we contextualize it musically and homiletically. We created an indigenous uh, uh, preaching style and worship style that was unique, that was faithful to. The message of scripture but that was also unique to our own our culture and our our way of expressing our mode of expression and that and that is why that's what interests me about missions that's why uh indigenous leadership and indigenous expressions of christianity are so crucial to the survival and to the flourishing of the gospel among every people group and this is this is true for black people as well as as other people um again as i mentioned earlier this is why uh christianity is a stumbling block for many people uh, I have missionary friends who are missionaries in China, and you see the same dynamic there, that while many people are converting to Christianity in China, in the house church movement, and, and even through the three self movement, um, there are also many people who want nothing to do with Christianity. And again, when you look at why, many missionaries in China will tell you that for people who don't want to become Christian, it's for similar reasons. It's because Christianity is perceived as a Western American white religion that is antithetical to Chinese culture, to Chinese identity. And that mentality is exacerbated by the fact that many Christians in China who convert to Christianity, they adopt a westernized version of Christianity. And so many times it's not contextualized to Chinese culture and Chinese thinking and Chinese philosophy, but it's, you know, 
Western American worship songs just translated into Chinese or systems of church government or books and theology just translated in. But this is why it's so important to have things contextualized because people need um, again, a lot of people will, especially in the church, I think we will have a very immature or naive theology of culture and say, well, people shouldn't care uh, what the culture of it is or what language or things like that. They should, you know, the only thing that matters is the gospel. But I think that's a little naive and also hypocritical because it's easy to say that when you're part of a culture where you have not been historically and systematically oppressed in the name of Christianity, of in the name of a foreign religion. Um, and so... Uh, but but also it's easy to say that too when your people are reflected in the leadership of the church and in the you know in the theological institutions and in the writings and in the music and the worship and uh, it, when your culture dominates the church to the point where you're not even uh, aware of how much so much of how church is done is according to your cultural values then you know it's like telling a fish what water is they don't know because they're always in it. But it's easier for minorities or non-Westerners to see how Westernized Christianity often is. And so, again, a lot of our people who are converting away from Christianity, they see this. They Again, Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X saw the picture of white Jesus hanging over a church of black bodies and saw there's something not right here. And what they saw... They were right about it. Isn't right. <laughs> that isn't. That isn't. You know, it, 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 there is something wrong with a church full of black people worshiping a, a blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus. There's something wrong there, and that's something that we need to own as believers. And that's why it's so important for us to contextualize the gospel because these people who are converting to other religions, they, uh, we as a people, have been so systematically persecuted. And um, I, I went to a Hebrew Israelite. Um, kind of, I don't know, what, I'm not sure what they call it, actually. I don't know if it's a temple or a congregation, but I went to one of their services, and they, 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 they're they serious. They they go all day on Saturday. Usually, I think they mostly meet on Saturdays, and they'll be there for like eight hours um, studying the Bible wrongly, <laughs> and but also they'll be going out and evangelizing. And one thing that impressed me in kind of a positive and negative way as a place of lament, but also of... Uh, kind of envy in, in a way was the fact that this congregation of, of Hebrew Israelites was full of young black men and young black women. Everyone in there was in their 20s or early 30s. And I was just so impacted by what I saw because that is the exact demographic that the black church in America is often missing the most. Black churches in America are often full of old, you know, middle-aged and older people or little kids. But, you know, teenagers, young adults, that is the demographic that we're missing the most because that's where you bear the brunt of police brutality, of mass incarceration, of single parenthood, of, of poverty, of STDs, of all the of teenage pregnancy, all the di all the dynamics that we are dealing with as a community. It hits our people hardest from the ages of 18 to 35. And and that is who we need to really be empowering. Um, and yet, you know, he realized in, in these other groups, that's who they're pulling in. And that's and they're giving a voice and giving an you know, Our people need to see themselves. They need community. They need to see themselves reflected. And the church has to um, be the, the agent that gives our people autonomy and, and power and empowerment and, and, ex and indigenous expression. Uh, I mean, another example is, but we're not doing that because another example of how we're not doing that is 
Christian hip hop artists, uh, at least in the States. I'm not sure about UK, but in the States, if you ask almost any Christian rapper, black Christian rapper who are trying to contextualize the gospel to hip hop culture, to young people's culture, almost any of them will tell you they get more support from white Christians than they do from black Christians. So we as a church, we as a people need to support uh, contextualized expressions of Christianity because all of us need to see ourselves reflected because that's part of God's image. It's not about idolizing blackness or idolizing our culture for its own sake, but this is the vision that God has given us. When in Revelation 7-9, John saw a, a celestial vision of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Part of being made in the image of God just as much as it is to be male and female, that that is part of how God created us. So men and women need specialized ministry. They need they need uh, that we have men's retreats and women's Bible studies, and we 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 specialize and we express the voice of male and female together because we know that equally that's that is the image of God. It's no different with race and ethnicity. That from the very beginning, God told humanity to go out and fill the earth and to to spread out. And, and, and there was already the table of nations in Genesis 10. But in our arrogance and in our cultural homogeneity, in our uh, cultural assimilation, we were trying to reach God through a Tower of Babel. And, and so cultural diversity wasn't a curse from God. It was actually God pushing us away from what we wanted to do. We wanted to be culturally assimilated, the same language. And God said, okay, you don't want to go out and spread out and fill the earth like I told you to? I'm going to make you do it, and I'm going to, I'm going to diversify you for you. And we see the fulfillment of that in Acts 2, where, again, we see all nations gathered beneath God, but God comes down us instead of us trying to go up to him god comes down to us and again all every language and every tribe and tongue is heard and we see the same thing in revelation 7 9 where again all tribes and tongues are gathered beneath the throne and cultural distinction is not going to disappear it's not a temporary obstacle but it's part of our eternal destiny and so it's very important that we on this side of glory take take every effort to reflect the fullness of who we are as a people, and especially in line with 2 Corinthians 8, especially to the parts of the body that lack honor and that lack dignity and lack. That's why it's important to say black lives matter, and that's why it's important for any ethnic or people group that have been historically denigrated and oppressed and bamboozled by Western Christians. It's so important to empower and enable and support and partner with contextualized indigenous expressions of Christianity. Wow, wow, wow. Thank you so much for that. And I, I can imagine that um, a number of people who are listening to this conversation now have probably become very interested in this discussion and are wondering how they can continue to learn more about the history of Christianity in Africa. Um, so I'm wondering, <laughs> what are some resources you would recommend to those who wish to learn more about early African Christianity, its significance for us today, and just how to apply it to um, sort of our contemporary problems that we're facing? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, that's great. I mean, we've we've also discussed a lot of these things on a very similar podcast on this side called Jude 3, and there's actually a bibliography posted on there of resources, of books you can read that tell that talk a lot about uh, early African Christianity. But um, I would say also the Center for Early African Christianity, which I believe is housed at Yale uh, Divinity School, and uh, was started by Thomas Oden, who's written a lot of books on early African Christianity. I'd also recommend um, I'd also recommend the book Black Man's Religion by Craig Keener and Glenn Osri. Um, I'd also recommend Philip Jenkins's book, The Lost History of Christianity. Also for 
uh, Ethiopian Christianity, I would recommend Ephraim Isaac's book, The Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo Church. Um, for Nubia, I would recommend the book The Medieval Kingdoms of Nubia uh, by Derek Wellesby. And uh, for Egypt, I would recommend uh, the book um, The Early Coptic Papacy by Stephen Davis. But for a, a general kind of overview of all of these African Christian kingdoms, as well as Middle Eastern and Asian, I would recommend, um, I would probably highly, most highly recommend the book uh, History of Eastern Christianity by Aziz Atiyah. And uh, that, uh, he who himself was a Copt, who also edited the Coptic Encyclopedia, which is a great resource just for just for Coptic studies. But but that book is a great starter for giving an overview of all of the early Christian groups in uh, Africa as well as Asia. And then also, um, you know, I'm working on my first book, um, and uh, it's called No Further Burden, which is from Acts 15. And, and uh, it's going to also be a kind of a shorter more condensed version that also looks at how Christianity became perceived as a Western religion, how that even came about, which maybe we can talk about on our next podcast we do together. But, um, but that'll be, I'm working on it now, mostly done. So that's going to be with InterVarsity Press and hopefully it'll be out in 2018. So definitely be looking out for that as well. Thank you for that. Are there any last words you'd like to leave our listeners with? I just I really appreciate this uh, the time to spend and it's such an encouragement to see our black brothers and sisters on the other side of the ocean who are engaging these same issues and I just uh, want to encourage it and ask that you would be praying for us over here in the United States uh, and that and that I just look forward to more opportunities we can find to partner with one another as uh, people from different cultures but also from very similar uh, who are experiencing very similar things and have a lot of awesome opportunities to partner with each other. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Bantu. Look forward to hearing more from you. Thank you once again. Thank you. I hope you guys had your pens and notepads at the ready for that interview with Dr. Vince Bantu. It was a lot of information to digest, but we hope you found it very useful. If you like this episode and would like us to do more interviews, shout us your recommendations and we'll check them out and see if we can get them on a future podcast episode. That's it for now. Hope you have a lovely week. Take care.